Hello and welcome to the Squiggly Animation Podcast. In this episode we meet Nora Toomey, director of the Oscar-nominated cartoon saloon film The Breadwinner. again everyone welcome to the first squiggly podcast of 2018 happy new year uh 24 days in <laughs> happy new year ben how's the new year treating you steve uh yeah it's treating me very well thank you very much it's uh it's good to be in the in the swing of things tremendous tremendous well as always the uh, the new year starts with a bit of a bang we're dealing with the residue of award season <laughs> In fact, it won't be long until the actual awards are given out. But now we actually have uh, Oscar nominations announced this very day. Uh, or yesterday, if you're listening to this when this goes out, which is the only possible way to do it. <laughs> unless it's after that. Live from the Samuel Golden Theatre, it's the 2018 Oscar nominations, and uh, what a crop they are. Uh, in some cases, something phonetically similar. <laughs> How are you feeling about the noms? Oh, well, um, for the animated short category, I'm, I'm quite, quite pleased. We've got Negative Space uh, by uh, Max Porter and Rue Kawahata. You've got Dear Basketball by Glenn Keane. Uh, you've got Revolting Rhymes, uh, Garden Party... And Lou, so I think there's a pretty decent crop there based on the films that were up for the nomination. Animated feature, I'm really pleased to see uh, The Breadwinner, uh, Loving Vincent, and I have not yet seen it, but I've heard some fantastic stuff about Coco as well uh, getting there. Also, The Boss Baby and Ferdinand uh, are in that category, so um, the Oscar-nominated Boss Baby. There's a chilling little thought (laughs) um also vfx you've got uh, star wars blade runner guardians of the galaxy volume 2 kong skull island and war for the planet of the apes the rule there is the longer your film's title is the more likely you are to get a uh, visual effects uh, oscar nomination well that will bode well hopefully for chuck Steele. Night of the Trampires. <laughs> Maybe if you can add some more words to that title, it might get a uh, VFX nod. Hmm. It is what it is, Ben. <laughs> Let's go through the yeah. uh, best uh, animated short first, I think. Uh, what, what are your, what's your reaction to that? Yeah, good. Nice films. Uh, the only one I haven't seen is Lou, and we were talking about that a couple of episodes ago, that it seemed like, by virtue of not being the new Frozen short... Uh, quite good <laughs> Pixar short. Yeah. Anything that's not that volcano short yes. is always going to be a significant improvement. <laughs> so based on the fact that it's not that, I know it's not the worst Pixar short in the world. What did you call it? The farting volcano? Yeah, I mean, that's that's pretty much what happens. Yeah. Know, to weird rock formations fusing together in a kind of horrifying... Cronenberg-esque. <laughs> <laughs> ...and disgusting way. <laughs> Fantastic. Yeah, so um, Dear Basketball by... Uh, it, it's it's written down here as Glenn Keane and Kobe Bryant. And I really hope that Kobe Bryant's down as the producer on that one because he's down as the director on, on most of the things I've seen. But he's, I, I can't imagine him ever picking up a pencil 
especially when you see the film. You don't see Kirby Bryant doing in betweening. No, I really don't. You know, I think he probably mm. probably kind of got uh, short attention span or something like that. I see. Yes, he'd have to go out and spend all the time outside playing with his balls. I imagine the the basketball theme might have been something to do with his influence. Yeah, maybe going out on a major limb there. That's <laughs> um, yeah, nice to well, you know, Glenn Keane continuing his post Disney output. It's a lovely piece. Mm. It's it's interesting when you get these pairings. It's like when Bill Plimpton does stuff for Kanye West. <laughs> yes. Like, oh, all right. Yeah. I was pretty certain that um, Glenn Keane had already been nominated for a uh, for animated feature. Uh, sorry. <clears throat> I was pretty certain that Glenn Keane had already been nominated for uh, animated short for uh, duet. Mm-hmm. That's not the case, I don't think. Ah, it's that uh, Mandala effect. Mandala effect. It's a theory that we occupy an alternate reality based on being sure of our memories that turn out to be completely untrue. Ah, okay. Did I say Ma- Mandala or Mandela? You said Mandala. Mandala, what the f- are they? I wonder what the Mandela effect is, though. <laughs> the Mandela effect, as it should be pronounced, is based on uh, everyone remembering... Nelson Mandela dying in prison. Yeah. When, in fact, he didn't die in prison. He went on to become the president of South Africa and died about three years ago. Right. But people are sure he died in prison. Which people? And there are all sorts of weird instances in, like, pop culture. Like, people will swear that the Monopoly guy has a monocle. Play it again, Sam, from Casablanca. Apparently, that never happens in the film either. Mm. Um. All this stuff that is, I guess, just kind of apocryphally known. Yeah. People now are ascribing to us having been <laughs> removed from our universe and placed in a new one. Because that makes more sense than us just having shitty memories. Yeah. it's Maybe it's hopeful. Maybe it's hopeful because, you know, in another reality, we're not having to put up with the type of crap that we're actually putting up with. Yeah, like in another reality, Lego Batman would have been nominated over (laughs) Boss Baby. According to Twitter, that is something that is uh, very much uh, an alteration that needs to be made. And in the past, uh, Glenn Keane would have been nominated for Duet. Mm. In the universe where it's spelled Berenstein Bears, (laughs) (laughs) but not our own. I, I, I think I share the same kind of overall opinion that the animated shorts are a uh, easier pill to swallow than the animated feature noms. But, you know, three out of two, pretty good. One, of course, I'm, I'm particularly relieved got a nomination because it's directed by this episode's guest. <laughs> Would have been a little bit awkward. If it yeah, a commiseration podcast. <laughs> Fortunately, I think um, it wasn't a huge risk on that one. Scheduling-wise, it seemed like a bit of a sure thing. Because it's been nominated for eight billion other awards in the last few weeks. It has, it has, but there was also that kind of uh, fear that because the rules had changed at the academy, that the more independent features at which you might want to class the breadwinner wouldn't have got through. Well, there you go. They surprised us. They did. They made it through against the odds, much like its protagonist. <laughs> it's very meta. Yeah. So, Boss Baby and Ferdinand. Now, this is going to come as a major shock to you that I haven't actually seen all of the Boss Baby. I, I made the executive decision 
during my viewing of it to not view more of it. <laughs> and that was roughly seven minutes in. Was was you enjoying it too much and you needed to sort of proportion it? Yeah, you got to pace yourself Yeah, <laughs> with these things, these exposures to uh, your natural endorphins. Otherwise, you're going to give yourself some kind of brain damage and you'll never be fulfilled by cinema again. <laughs> and Ferdinand, the diplomatic capsule review is it was just trying to be too many things at once, mm-hmm. story-wise. You know, if it had maybe focused on one element, uh, maybe it would have been better. I mean, it didn't feel like what it was, and this is a sort of example of why the breadwinner, I think, succeeds uh, for what it is, as something that's using a book as source material. Yeah. Ferdinand was very much a classic example of, let's find a way of, of extrapolating you know, the the most basic element of the original story's construct and intent, and then just make our own f- movie. Mm. And I don't know, I mean, I remember, like, post-seeing the press screen and then seeing a bunch of trailers for it over Christmas, and, like, the trailers were almost, like, designed to put people off going. It was a very odd marketing angle. Like, the way the the selection of the clips and stuff, like, they they actually made a point of picking the most sort of odious moments of the film. And actually adding, like, really unnecessary like at one one of the ones i i saw i'm sure added like a bunch of fart sound effects mm. that aren't in the film which i guess to make it more hilarious i don't know <laughs> we should do that with this podcast it'll find a niche audience i'm sure give the people what they want have you seen either of those films boss baby or ferdinand uh no no i've not um i uh i elected to uh save them all up for my birthday oh well you're in for a treat. Yeah. Uh, elsewhere, Loving Vincent, um, which uh, is a very much liked film by some, by quite a lot, actually. I've, I've seen a couple of surprising detractors of the film yeah. online. Uh, one rather prominent festival programmer compared it to uh, sewage. Oh, wow. <laughs> which I thought was a little bit extreme. I mean, I could see if you were like a really sort of dedicated van gogh fan it would be a hard thing to watch because you know it's it's a 90 minute imitation of something you would hold very dear to your heart if you're a more casual cinema goer slash art enthusiast then you can see i think clearer the goodness of their intent mm-hmm. but yeah no some people uh some people were a little bit vicious about it i wonder what that same uh festival programmer would make of the boss baby uh, i imagine his opinion of that wouldn't be high <laughs> So it's a he. It is indeed. No girls allowed in festival programming. <laughs> I liked Loving Vincent. I thought I thought it was a fantastic film. I like the whole mystery thing. And I'm not the sort of person who'll tune into like mysteries on the telly. I'm very impatient, you know. <laughs> um, but I think it's an absolutely fantastic film. You know, it's it's mesmerising. It's uh, when you get used to the the look of it, it's. You can just indulge yourself, especially when you see it on the big screen. Just watch it move. Uh, and the story is great as well. I really enjoyed it. Yeah, I, I felt the same. I, I There was no point at what, in when I was watching it did I ever feel sort of like, oh, well, this is really um, a waste of my time. Mm. And I have felt that way at some premieres in Annecy. Yeah. And I've certainly felt that the audience response to a lot of premieres has been a little bit manic and disproportionate. But yeah, it's it's that one was fine. It was it was nice. It was well done. I liked the music. Yeah. Well, there you go. That's the Oscars. That will be taking place. Uh, when's that? March. March fourth. Um, 
March 4th. Yeah, yeah. It'll be here any moment. BAFTA nominations, more Academy goodness. And this one, I think, is a more sort of condensed... Well, it's only three per category. Yes. So there's more chance to pick three good ones, and it seems like that's been the case here. I mean, I, I have no issues with any other BAFTA nominations. I think they're all perfectly worthy. You've got uh, Best British Short. You've got Have Heart by Will Anderson. Uh, that's available in VR as well. It did two versions. Uh, Mamoon by Ben Steer at uh, Blue Zoo and Poles Apart by uh, Paloma uh, Bezer and uh, Sir N. Lowe. If I've pronounced those wrong, I apologise. That's the NFTS, isn't it? It is indeed. And uh, we do have a feature on Paul's Apart over on the website uh, if you want to learn more from the filmmakers about how that came together. That was probably my favourite of this year's NFTS crop. Now, being a bit cheeky, I haven't actually seen uh, Will Anderson's film. I'm just basing it on having liked all of his other films, that that one's a good one. I think that's a pretty fair assessment. It's uh, it's a great film. It's about GIF who has an existential crisis. So oh, lovely. Uh, and it's, it's it's back to the birds as well with uh, with Will, which is oh, nice. Good. It, it's unusual. I uh, I text a couple of these nominees, uh, the producer of one of them and 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 Will, and I was the first person. I didn't text him instantly. I wasn't stood waiting for the nominees. I just texted him in the morning, say, "Hey, congratulations." And they hadn't heard. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so it was... It, I don't think anyone really... We're the only people talking about the, the BAFTA animation things. I don't think many people care about them, which is a great shame. I think I did that last year with um, Jennifer Zeng. Mm. But she wasn't in England, so I woke her up. <laughs> <laughs> by um, congratulating her on Twitter. <laughs> and uh, she's like, what? <laughs> Who is this? <laughs> oh, shit. Okay, good. <laughs> Yeah, it's nice that we can uh, bother people with, uh, with with the fact that they've been nominated for for awards, which is good. I do I do have a real soft spot for Mamoon in this category. Mamoon. Mamoon. It's a good word to say, as well as uh, it's a very good animation in terms of its technique projected onto uh, styrofoam, is that? Um, the packing foam. I think they showed a little clip of it at Annecy, and I remember thinking, I remember not really sort of getting what it was they were going for there but uh the final product is quite something it's um mm. it's gotten a lot of tongues wagging mm-hmm. yeah big sort of style shift i think when we consider the film we were talking about in the last episode they definitely uh with their other short films they there was a kind of running thread throughout them yeah very up to 11 vibrant cartoony sensibility mm. which uh was tremendously gratifying and usually very funny this is something that's a bit more solemn yeah, and uh, a bit more thoughtful, but wonderfully done, and amazing music, and quite special. So they're all pretty top notch. I mean, the subject matter is a little bit criticism proof, which always kind of puts me on my guard a little bit because mm. you know so many people you know do films about that kind of thing, and then if it's a film that really does kind of shine through, and it's like, okay, well, not only did that deal with it well it dealt with it in a way that i don't think i've seen before Mm. and then that's actually a very good product you're not you know using your subject matter as a crutch they certainly don't with this film so it's uh it's based on um refugees isn't it yeah so so you can criticize that if you if you're a horrific racist Oh yeah, if you're a bag of shit, yeah, <laughs> it's pretty. Good. But yeah, like I mean, I, I I imagine there's probably a very high percentage of like students making Syrian refugee crisis films. Nope, they're all making mobile phones. Are bad films. 
in both instances, Academy Awards, uh, the Oscars and the BAFTAs, we have squiggly polls up. So you can cast your vote and uh, we'll get a little aggregated look at what the squiggly audience wants to win. How's that looking at the moment? Uh, I wonder. Let's have a look at the BAFTAs first. VFX crowd want Blade Runner to win. Polls Apart leading the way for British shorts. My Life is a Courgette, 60% of the votes for animated feature. The Oscar poll only just went up, like, so I don't know how many people have voted yet, but we can have a little look. So far, Loving Vincent's the front runner for animated feature. Uh, Negative Space for short, and Star Wars for VFX. So if you take issue with those results, then head on over to squiggly.com and uh, do your bit to right that wrong and it will affect the actual outcome in no way whatsoever. <laughs> but you get that little rush of clicking and a thing happening as a result of it. It's the future! <laughs> I saw the uh, trailer for the new Shaun the Sheep movie. Oh, really? Looks quite good. It's interesting. It's not a um, subject I, I saw coming mm. as far as Shaun the Sheep. I'm not sure if it's online yet or not. Was it in front of the early man preview you went to? Yes, it was indeed. So I imagine it will also um, accompany the uh, wide release of the film, which I think is this Friday. It is. But yes, Early Man, out soon. The hotly anticipated return of Nick Park. Will it make your eyeballs melt? It's that amazing. I was pleasantly surprised that it wasn't Wallace and Gromit as cavemen. Right. Which I think a lot of people were perhaps a little concerned it might just be. It's its its own thing in its own right and um has some really funny bits in it i think the stuff i found really funny no one else seemed to it was weird right like there's a lot of very very light typically admin humor mm. that's you know i mean it's if you like puns and i, I think <laughs> maybe you do uh you'll be in hog heaven but then there were just like these weird moments that i thought were very funny that like everyone else seemed just confused by like there's this recurring joke that involves a duck, and it just it it seemed a bit out of place almost, but that to me made it funny. I can imagine the screening now with every now and then ha in the background, like oh, what a good one. Um, I wouldn't maybe rank it very highly among Abman's feature film output overall, but a, a not especially exceptional Abman film is still a lot better than a lot of what else you'll be seeing this year. What, what do you place at the top in terms of Ardman films? Overall, like, the original Wallace and Gromit film and Chicken Run and, you know, Pirates and Shaun the Sheep, like, they all kind of have a certain quality about them. Mm. There's a lot of ingenuity to them. I think, actually, one of my... The one that kind of will occasionally occupy the top spot for me is Shaun the Sheep, because it was a much less grand affair than the, the big features that they did, like the stuff they did with DreamWorks and some of the dabblings in CGI features that they've done. But by not being particularly grand, it did what Ardman always do really, really well with their shorter-form work, which is find these ingenious, creative solutions to story problems and character development and things like that, and, you know, getting from, you know, location to location and... There are no deus ex machinas. There are just sort of things that are set up really well that then pay off really well and satisfyingly. Yeah. And the curious thing about Early Man, and this is not, I think, a secret, is that it's there was a lot of struggle with the uh, last reel of the film, like as far as what would happen 
and or how the story would play out. I mean, everyone seemed to, you know, not really know how they were going to get it done. And so you watch the film, and it's like, well, I can't imagine it ending any other way. Mm. So I wonder what the problem was. Maybe there was an attempt to do something a little less conventional, and maybe that ultimately was scrapped in favor of just, okay, well, let's just wrap this up the way like any other film would. So I did enjoy it. You know, it's uh, uh, always nice to see a lot of people you like in the credits of a film. Yeah. Not the case. We're going to see a film like Boss Baby. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> wasn't, wasn't it the same case with uh, Curse the Were-Rabbit that it wasn't until the last minute that they had committed to an ending? It was... Um, and in fact, there was they had to CG out, um, you know, the bit at the end where, uh, spoiler alert, uh, if you've not seen a film that's 13 years old, um, where Wallace comes back to life and those ears that he has on are CG because originally he still had the rabbit ears from earlier on in the film. Little uh, hot Wallace and Gromit fact for, uh, for, for the listeners there. But... Um, <clears throat> But yeah, and so is is that not Nick Park's style that he doesn't quite know how to end the films until he has to end them? He just likes playing with the toys for so long and and then <laughs> just commits to an ending. Yeah, maybe it's not an uncommon thing for endings of films to be tinkered with and changed. Sometimes even after production, like you have to go back in and and you know do something more audience friendly. And usually, if that's a studio decision, mm. it's to the film's detriment. Yes. So, uh, you know, I think that it, I mean, it felt like a very authentic product. I think it's probably something that they're all quite happy with and proud with. And, um, you know, there are some lovely little sight gags and stuff. I mean, some stuff is very cut from the mold of Flintstones, like the animal to hand can be used as a device or a tool or a something or other okay. that a piece of technology would do in our time. That, that old gag uh, mm. is pretty prevalent in this. Is it very far side as well? A little bit, not crazily. I mean, they, yeah, I, I think the far side was always a little bit more kind of like conceptually bizarre. Mm-hmm. And this is a pretty straightforward thing. The, actually, the thing I mentioned about like the the duck, that joke, that's quite far sidey, right? Which is probably why I liked it. But I, I anticipate people really liking it. I think that it's um, someone on Instagram asked if it was an Ardman classic, and I can say it's definitely classic Ardman. That's a good get out. Time will tell. As <laughs> thank you. Uh, time will tell as to you know how it will rank up against the others. Nice to see them still at it. You know, good stuff. Is is this what happens when Nick Park won't do an interview with us? <laughs> we give him a lukewarm review. Yeah, you know, it's. I think that was a perfectly okay review. I I won't take the time to write a review because I certainly didn't get invited to any junkets. Exactly, same here. But then I I don't think it would have been different if I. Like, it's not like we kiss the ass. I mean, I didn't give Ferdinand a good review, really. Some of them just aren't always going to be one's cup of tea. Yeah. Anyway, so something for next year's Oscar contenders, maybe. Who knows. Who knows? Going back to Shaun the Sheep, is it any good? Does it look any good? It looked all right. I mean, it was just, it was like a teaser, so I'm not sure if it's even footage from the final film. Mm. It has a nice... I mean, the cinematography was really lovely. It's really moody, and um, it's it's very clearly referencing a genre of film that... Um, and it does it really, really well. And the set is... There's a good sort of set gag that's pretty fun. It's kind of predictable, because it's, you know, Shaun the Sheep, how it's set up, you usually know... It involves them f***ing around with the farmer. Yeah. So you can see the joke coming, but it's nicely done. And then I guess the the coda of the joke is the setup for the feature film. 
unless they just came up with this as like an idea for a teaser trailer. Mm. Like it might be that the film comes out and has nothing to do with this at all. They did that car, didn't they, for the last one with the uh, with them pretending to be Sean pretending to drive the farmer's car, and then he just hides the hide the car behind the um, and the car alarm goes off, and Bitzer has to pretend that he's barking. Right. Yeah. And so the farmer just looks at him like like the daft or something. So it might just be kind of like a little a sort of marketing thing, like we're making a new movie. Yeah, we'll see. But that one, I, I was like, uh, oh, good, that's trotting along. In the uh, the nearer future, going back to um, nominees and stuff, well, one nominee in particular that's being nominated for everything under the sun, <laughs> as well it should. It's a cracking film. The Breadwinner, which is the new film from Cartoon Saloon, I think it's been nominated for, like, I actually don't know, a lot of Annie Awards. Everything. Like, loads and loads of those, uh, including yeah. Best Independent Feature. But all sorts of areas of production um, are being considered, like editing, music, production design, storyboarding, character design, basically everything, I I think, (laughs) that has a category that bodes well. It also got nominated for, I think, five or six Canadian Screen Awards about a week ago. It's a Canadian co-production. I think Canada and Luxembourg, and of course Ireland, where Cartoon Saloon are based, so an international co-production about... Life in Afghanistan, which is an interesting uh, choice of subject. It's adapted from a book, as I mentioned before, by Deborah Ellis. Uh, it's interesting. It's it's being regarded as, as well as being a, you know, a, a film in its own right. If you go onto its website, there's a whole section about it as a teaching tool. Mm. And I think that part of its sort of distribution involves actual sort of school-oriented events and screenings. You can download like a, a PDF study guide for the film which is kind of interesting so it it deals with a lot of rather crucial social issues and when i was watching it i'm like oh this is very timely um when you consider a lot of what's going on at the moment a lot of movements and things like that and the notion finally being sort of dissipated that oppression against women isn't something that's confined to certain areas of the world it's sort of all over the place yeah and then the more I watched it, I was like, it's actually, it's, it's, it's timely, but it's simultaneously it's timeless as well. Like this, you could have watched this film 20, 50 years ago and it would have a lot of the same takeaways from it. You know, in a lot of respects, the obvious comparison to make would be to Mulan in terms of the basic, well, the basic premise is it's a little girl called Pavana who lives in Kabul. Her dad is, uh, has one leg. He struggles uh, and is eventually arrested and so it's her alone with her mother and her sister and her baby brother. And it's a world that is not very uh, accommodating to women and young women. And so without a father to kind of bear the brunt of life in Kabul, Pavana takes the initiative to being pre-adolescent, cut off her hair and go out into town and pretend she's a boy. And that way she can make money. And uh, she meets a friend of hers from childhood uh, who is doing the same thing basically. And so that is essentially the kind of uh, jumping off point for the story, uh, which also, of course, involves her wanting to get her father back. And there's a sort of B story that involves her older sister being married off and the uh, hope of security and safety that'll provide for the family. Mm. And one of the really lovely threads of the film is that this girl is a storyteller or her father's a storyteller. And in his absence, she's kind of taking up the reins of that, and she tells this story in parts throughout the film. That's um, the whole film's animated, 
beautifully, but these sequences in particular have a lovely art style, the story within the film. And then that kind of feeds into the, the climax of the film really well. So yeah, it's, it's a really very engaging, very gripping and, and deservedly accoladed film. They always they always look so exquisite, don't they, the cartoon saloon films? Mm-hmm. And the film itself alone would look exquisite. But when it turns to this storytelling device, the cutout uh, look, uh, the lighting, the texture, the whole kind of... The animation style is absolutely superb. Mm-hmm. It stands apart from uh, Tom's films as well, which I think is a, a good distinction to make. Tom's films, uh, Tom Moore, who directed um, uh, Secret of Kells and Song of the Sea, f- wonderful artist, fantastic art style with those films, uh, and very distinctive to Tom. And this is really uh, Nora's film yeah. as such. It's a it's a real uh, masterpiece. I'd say so. I mean, it's it's still in some respects, kind of recognizably the same studio. Very sort of independent art style. There are, there are a couple of characters in it that feel more like the sort of approach to character design from the other films. But that's it's a lot more restrained in this. It's a lot more um, subtle, you know, the art style. Hmm. You had a lot of quite extreme character designs in something like Song of the Sea to sort of bolster its you know feel as a modern fairy tale type film whereas with this that's really kind of you know held back they don't really sort of become fantastical designs until we get into these sort of fantasy story segments Mm. and yet it is still you know it's an animated feature it is still it's not like completely anatomically rigid to real life it's something that kids i'm sure would would be perfectly happy to sit and watch even though it is educational yeah because that's the thing, as a kid, you can sniff that shit out a mile away <laughs> when you think, like, you know, wait a minute, I think it's trying to teach me something. Yeah. Do you know the, um, the Jim Henson uh, Greek tales ones? Were we talking about this? Somebody else was talking about it with me. I do remember sitting down to watch them, and I was like, oh, this is, this is good. And then that dawning realization that it was a lesson. Oh, God. Yeah. It's not so fun when you think you've got a Mario game, and then the point of the Mario game is you have to collect historical facts. No, that one. Yeah. I'm still pissed off about that one. <laughs> uh, so the Red Winner actually isn't going to be out in the UK for a little while, but as mentioned, it did this week get nominated for an Oscar, and uh, I think it's worth you know chatting a little bit about before you know the big theatrical release over here. I think it's going to be May. Yeah. But it's screened at festivals, and I think that... Uh, I mean, did you screen it in Manchester? We certainly did. Yeah. Uh, so people may have seen it there, and um, you know there are various other uh, events, I'm sure, will happen in the interim where you'll be able to catch it. Uh, Nora actually founded Cartoon Saloon. Like She's been there from the start mm-hmm. with Paul Young and Tom Moore, and she co-directed Secret of Kells. And uh, recently, one of my favorite things that they've done is uh, the show Puffin Rock. Yeah. And uh, she was a big part of that. I think she pretty much uh, oversaw all of that. It's one of those shows that friends who have kids, like, yearn for. Because, A, it's not Paw Patrol. <laughs> and, B, it's, it's just really lovely to look at. Yeah. But me and Laura actually watched a bit of it on Netflix, just because you can just look at the environment design. And it's like with the feature films, it's just absolutely uh, stunning yeah. when it's put together. Well, in the earlier days of Cartoon Saloon, Nora had also done some uh, shorter films. One of them, called Backwards Boy, was never actually made uh, in English, so you can only see the Irish version of it 
But it's clear that the gift for animation is, is very strong, even at that point. However long ago that would have been, uh, about 15 years ago, I guess. It's been very good to see the film do this film do so well, and no one really batting an eyelid over it being a female director. It come, well, it comes up a lot, so I guess that does constitute eyelid batting. But the fact that it's it's not come up as any kind of you know issue or threat to the film's sort of wider appreciation, it's embarrassing. This even comes up actually. Mm. I think the the thing that is in a lot of people's minds when the phrase female animation director comes up as people always bring up brave and what happened there and um you know a lot of people yeah. are still irritated about that also people also say you know that we shouldn't say female animation director and i to to a large extent agree with that she's an animation director gender shouldn't play a role but in in saying so i believe we do so to point out the rarity of it yeah and the fact that that needs work and we need to uh, to have a lot more of these voices uh, on screen. That's exactly right. It's the whole point of, like, that it is kind of uncommon. It will be pointed out. You know, and it's not a film that you watch and you think, uh, ah, what a what a great female-directed film. <laughs> <laughs> it's a film about women in a lot of respects. It's a film about men who uh, struggle with women, who hate women, men who are threatened by women, I think, and women who are in a more direct physical sense, threatened by men. It's a sort of snapshot of, you know, in some respects, a very specific geographical location under a very specific Taliban rule. And yet there are some rather sort of worrying little parallels and some chilling little connections to some rather unjust goings-on that of late are having some light shone on them. Mm-hmm. So... I, I do think, even though, as I said before, it is kind of a universal time period film, it will hold up very well. There is something about what's going on today that makes it feel sort of particularly prescient. Mm. So, very, very glad to be able to talk to Nora about it. Shall we have a listen to that? Let's indeed. Cool. Well, this is Nora Toomey, director of the now Oscar-nominated The Breadwinner from Cartoon Saloon. I guess, I mean, I was somebody who never liked school very much. So I, I didn't really fit into that whole thing. I used to doodle a lot in the back of the class and not do my homework and draw on the backs of my copy books instead, you know. So I, I left school uh, early. I was 15 when I left and I went to work almost uh, immediately and worked in factories for a couple of years before realizing that, you know, that there was no future really to, to that. And I still would go home and draw, you know. Um, so so I uh, got a portfolio together and I went to uh, uh, an art college in, in Cork, where I'm from. And um, they took me on for a year it's just to, to, you know, look at fine art, look at uh, ceramics, look at all the different types of disciplines and to see where I would fit in, I guess. So when I was on that course, I met some people who were going into animation. So I followed them because I, I heard that you can, um, you can draw every day, basically, for a living, you know, with animation. Yeah. So that's. Um, how I went uh, into college and when I was in college in in Dublin I met uh, Paul Young and and Tom Moore and Jeremy Purcell, Fabian Erlinghauser, a lot of people that I still work with today um, who are just uh, energetic, um, enthusiastic uh, people who uh, love animation I guess so so for me that was the the in really I guess I worked for a year in brown bag films uh, in in Dublin 
Um, and then I came down to Kilkenny with Tom and Paul and about 12 other animators uh, to set up Cartoon Saloon. So we um, set up there initially to make The Secret of Kells, which was called Rebel at the time. We were thinking of making a kind of a long short film. Um, and I made some short films. I made uh, From Darkness and a, a film called Backwards Boy. Um, and we did lots of commercials and just anything to keep the lights on. And while we were doing that, I guess we got an education of what it takes to keep a company going, I guess, uh, you know, uh, whether it be developing films, developing TV series, uh, commercials, anything just to keep the team uh, going. Um, and that's, I guess, how we how we got there. Uh, that's how the Cartoon Saloon formed, really, just a, a group of friends wanting to wanting to make stories together. Hmm. You mentioned um, your short films. I'd be quite interested to hear about like how From Darkness came around. Was it something that was commissioned or was it a personal project? A little bit of both, I guess. I had mm. been uh, drawing from that story. It's based on a, a story called The Skeleton Woman, which is an Inuit uh, folktale. And I had been um, using sketchbooks to kind of explore folktales and fairy tales and myths. And especially, I guess, the... The, the role of the feminine in, in all of these. Um, so I've been I've been sketching away. And then the, the film board, the Irish film board, um, has initiatives called Frameworks, which they give uh, the, the funding to short films every year. So I put in an application to um, to uh, make this, this short film, and they accepted it, so we were, we were away. So that was our first um, large-ish kind of project that we'd, we'd taken on, I guess. So it was a it was a huge education in production as well as um, it was the first time I started editing as well um, at, at any kind of a serious scale. So it was a, it was a it was a, a baptism of fire, I guess. But it was it was great because it was quite manageable as well. We had a team of maybe I think ultimately I don't know ten people I suppose working on it. Um, it was my first experience with a sound design. I remember going to see the first Lord of the Rings film and really enjoying the sound design, and then immediately starting to worry about how the hell was I going to do sound because I had no experience of it at all, you know, uh, for, from darkness. So, um, you know, it, 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 there's nothing better than just, you know, jumping into something. Um, and the, the film board here in Ireland is certainly encouraging and has been over the, the decades, really, you know, for, for uh, young and experienced filmmakers, it, it helps them cut their teeth and to, to uh, understand what a budget and a schedule is where it was when it comes to making independent films at a feature scale much later on and trying to link in with other companies around the world and to try and dovetail your schedule into theirs and all of this that it, it makes a it makes a huge difference and it gives you the basis i guess um for for what you need to know later on later on with um backwards boy which uh, i haven't been able to track down in english i don't know if there is an english version no Mm-hmm. But I, I love it visually. Like it's it's a joy to watch and kind of sort of piece together what's happening. Was that sort of similar circumstances or? That was an uh, Irish uh, storyteller uh, called uh, Jackie McDonagh uh, came to us um, with his son-in-law who runs a, a company called Santa, and um, so they had this this story, this short story uh, about a, a young boy uh, born with his head backwards. So it was a really dark mm-hmm. comedy. Um, about I guess a, a, a relationship between a, a child and his father, and I guess the, and, and and his mother, and the different types of love, I guess. Um, so it, I thought it was incredibly interesting. So and again, the idea of tackling 
uh, a, a subject matter, I guess, that had a little bit of depth to it and had a little bit of symbolism to it, I guess, um, in a in a kind of a, a comedic kind of fashion, I guess, was was interesting. So that was uh, T.G. Cahar at the Irish language TV station uh, here in Ireland uh, that that commissioned that and um, uh, with the, the the film board is again. So yeah, so we get uh, got going on that, and again, I just wanted to explore using different types of uh, medium, and that uh, we. Uh, used compositing, you know, compositing photographic elements with uh, hand-drawn animation. So again, it was just further down the road of exploring, you know, becoming a storyteller, uh, understanding how to hit the tone, you know, uh, correctly, um, and how to even, you know, have an even tone across a piece, um, and then all the technical uh, things that you need to understand as well as a filmmaker. So for me, those, you know, working on on shorts as well as commercials, um, I think really gave me... um, an understanding of every aspect of, of, of filmmaking so that, you know, I'm not the best at, at this point in my career, I'm not the best placed person to animate a scene because there are people who, you know, will work eight hours a day concentrating on, on one scene um, and and will do it brilliantly. But I understand what they have to go through. I can fix, you know, things if, if I'm not uh, absolutely um, happy with them. So I have enough experience. As a director, you become kind of jack of all trades, not so that you do all of those trades, but so that you understand them and you understand what you're, what your your crew are, are going through, so the the shorts um, were were a great education with with uh, with those kind of things. I think. Did you find then it was sort of helpful when you ultimately then were co-directing um, Secret of Cows? It it did absolutely. I think the best piece of advice I ever got as a director was from um was from another director who said that you have to you have to give as much information for every scene that you that you want to uh, put into production. You have to imagine that it's like you're explaining it to somebody who understands nothing, you know, and, and that you have to over-explain. When you feel that you're over-explaining, then over-explain a little bit more. So for me, that was the, the best advice because I always look at things. If, if, if I see a scene coming back to me and it's not what I want, it's my failure. You know, it's not the person that wasn't listening. It was I didn't explain uh, enough, uh, you know, of, of what the scene needed to be, because when you're putting together uh, films, and certainly with the Secret of Kells, it was the case where you have one um, performance going through the whole film. You have the the character of Brendan, who has an arc, who you know meets different characters along the way, who is animated in one scene in in Ireland and another scene in Belgium, cleaned up in Brazil or Hungary, you know. And uh, so for us to make sure that the performances were consistent throughout the whole film was a major challenge we were animating on paper as well the characters were um you know really strong design but very simple so and and paradoxically that's harder to animate you know the less features you have Mm. on a face when you're animating uh, on paper it's 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 very difficult because you have no anchor point um so all of these things were were quite uh, difficult it was my introduction to um, Avid software as well, you know. So uh, for for editing, so for uh, again, like for me, with uh, with any film, the 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 edit is the the center of everything. You know, it's where you can watch all your scenes coming in. Um, we also had a production pipeline software called Hopsoft at the time, which was the f- the first time that you could bring in scenes that were being animated in a different country. You could bring them in real time. They would come onto your yeah, your um, edit timeline and watch all your scenes come together wherever they're from. Mm-hmm. So that was um, that was pretty incredible, and that made me, you know, realize wow, you know, uh, you can really work with different companies from around the world and create one performance for one character and create a, a cohesive uh, film uh, in this in this new way, I guess. So um, 
so yeah, I mean, it, 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 the Secret of Kells was very difficult and very challenging in lots of ways, and it was our first uh, co-production and trying to understand how that works and how if you fall behind schedule, you're impacting another uh, company in a, in a different country and a whole other crew. Um, you know, so all of these things were were massively um, uh, stressful, I guess, in one way, but but liberating in another because you know it, it, we didn't have because you didn't have one huge funder breathing down your neck telling you that you have to make something to a certain tone. It meant that as a storyteller, uh, you could be uh, more free. You know, you could you could tell a story that is a little bit different, that is a little bit more raw, that asks more questions than it answers. You know. Uh, so for me, that's always the more interesting place uh, in terms of film. And then it was just a joy working with Tom Moore and with uh, Ross Stewart, uh, you know, they, they, um, and the whole team. They were just um, really, really, it was just, it was, a, it was a joy to work on. Are the days of paper animation, are they completely behind you guys now? Or is there still like little elements that can use those processes? We we still have our animation desks and we still have paper punch and, and paper and then sometimes we use it. I know Tom used it for his uh, latest film, Wolfwalkers, uh, for some animation tests. Uh, he he did some uh, paper animation, so it's not it's 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 not dead. We do think of our screens or Cintiqs or our, our Wacom tablets as though they're paper, so we still animate. Uh, straight and you know we animate straight into the computer but it's a hand-drawn drawing and then we you know go to the next frame and make the next hand-drawn drawn drawing um so uh so i don't see it as being i you know really do think of it as like different types of pencils rather than um it being a different discipline it's the, the exact same discipline except you're not using your your left hand to flip paper you're you know you're using it to to scroll back and forwards between uh between frames it makes you a little bit lazier because you know back in the day you had to queue that we would be one line tester per ten animators or something like that. You had to queue up, you know. You had to make sure that in, you know that uh, your, your your animation timing everything was correct in, in you know in, in your head basically. And as you flip your paper and then you queue up, you 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 line test your animation. The whole process takes you know ten minutes or something like that. Then everyone can see your animation on your monitor, um, you know. So it's, it was it was a different headspace. Honestly, now you just try something out. It doesn't work. You, know control z go again mm. nobody sees it um everything is more immediate you don't have to be it's kind of the same with editing when you're editing on film you had to be really sure about what you were doing everything had to be planned um the same with shooting under a rostrum camera everything had to be planned to a yeah, massive degree and a, an exposure sheet and now we're lazier as filmmakers we don't um have to plan those things so much and in ways it makes us uh, less good at communicating to assistants or to um, you know, compositors, or you know, so so that's why it goes back to my point about um, about explaining and communicating. You know, and as a as a director, that's your big job. It's to explain every day, several times a day, why every scene in your film exists, why every character does everything that they do. Um, you know, what's within the, the the bounds of their their their, their character and what isn't. You know, so um, so yeah, I mean. It, it, uh, paper and you know all the, the, that kind of analog um, uh, pipeline is is still there in my head, you know. <laughs> so mm. um, and and it's it, I I think for students it's a, it would be you know it, it's a fantastic thing to learn because you it, it slows you down to the point where you think about everything to the, the degree that you have to end up thinking about things as a director. I think. You mentioned about like how the um, the simpler designs were harder 
with hand-drawn animation, uh, with um, you know, paper animation. In what sort of respects has like, the digital pipeline helped out with that? It's helped to a degree. So if you have a character, for instance, coming forward in space, it's easier to control things like the, you know, the eyes because you can, you can copy and paste and scale. Um, whereas, you know, back in paper days, if you wanted to do that, you would, it would involve a photocopier, it would involve taping down elements and again it was you know a, a huge degree of control where you can do it much faster now with copy and paste and if you even end up tracing over to get a cleaner line it, um, again just the, the idea that you can you know that you can just press play at any second uh, it just makes it that much easier so you get um, and I, I guess when we're entering the area of, of or the year of of, uh, of 4k it'll you know, it, it, it just makes all of those um, little, you know, uh, mistakes that much uh, that much less noticeable. Having said that, I kind of love the mistakes mm-hmm. as well, you know, in, in hand-drawn animation. Uh, and lots of times on, on, on my latest film where, you know, with my crew, we, we, we would all watch scenes together, you know, all the heads of the department, Stuart Shankly, which is an, uh, an amazing um, director in his own right, was my, my uh, assistant director on, on this film. And he's fantastic for spotting all the little issues you know, uh, with the with the animation, um, but it, it, with a film uh, that's on a budget, you always look at the face first. If the face works, and if you believe the performance of the characters, you believe um, uh, that they're thinking and feeling. Um, that's the most important thing. If uh, if a hand is jiggling a little bit or whatever, not only do I not mind it, but I kind of like it because it reminds you that it's not. 3D animation. It's not fighting against software to make a very smooth performance. It's it's our hands, you know. And we, we when we when we draw, when we paint, it's a, it's a, it's a little bit imperfect, and that's where the the, the ultimate beauty is in. From area that I feel anyway, you know, is, is is the little imperfections that remind us that we're flawed and that we're human and that we a drawing is never perfect and that we're never completely satisfied with a piece of animation, you know, or or anything like that. I mean, it's interesting to uh, you know, talk to animators. It's very seldom you find animators that are completely happy with you know the performances that they create, and even when they create what you consider is a, you know a, a, an incredibly beautiful piece of animation or you know a, a very emotional piece. Um, you know, people are never fully happy with it. You know, they're always thinking that the next thing is going to be better. And I guess it's only in hindsight you look back, you know, and you say, oh, you know, <laughs> you, you know, it, it, it takes. It, it, it's difficult to see beyond your flaws. You know, we, we all blow our flaws up to to, uh, to huge degrees. And I think especially when it's around, you know, something as, um, uh, you know, a process like animation, I think, which is so intense and so focused. And so, you know, you're talking about people, uh, especially with hand-drawn uh, animators, I think they're, they're, they're it's just it's such an incredible skill. So coming to the breadwinner uh, being adapted from a book, uh, were you aware of the original book before the film kicked into gear no i wasn't um i first came across it when jerry sharon and paul young our managing director and, and one of my partners in cartoon Sidoon came back from an animation market with the book they had met um anthony leo and andrew rosen of aircraft pictures a canadian company um who had the rights to deborah ellis's book and they had seen the secret of kells and wanted to know if we would like to uh, uh, adapt the book with them so um, I read it I, I took it home and read it in an, in an evening and uh, just thought 
the way that Deborah writes for young people. I mean, her her book is aimed, I think, at, at children from the ages of nine and ten upwards. And I think she really uh, aimed her writing at children, I guess, in the West to have them understand what children in other parts of the world are, uh, have to go through or had gone through. Um, so, I mean, it was it was uh, it was just a really, really great book. I thought the character of Piranha as well was 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 fantastic because she was very strong um, uh, and very intelligent, but at the same time quite flawed. And you could, you know, you 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 really felt her internal voice, and it felt so um, human. It was very easy to uh, empathize with a character like Piranha. So I thought that it would be a very exciting thing to do to try and bring that to the screen and to try and understand what are the things that we could show from the book and what were the things that we couldn't show and what were the, the I guess what was also really interesting to me because Deborah um, wrote the book in the late uh, 1990s. She wrote it when the, the Taliban were still in power in Afghanistan. She went and worked in refugee camps uh, on the border of Pakistan and Afghanistan um, and uh, wrote about the women that she met and the children that she met and, and their stories. Um, so I thought it was interesting to try to acknowledge the everything that had happened since 9/11, um, the fall of the Taliban, you know, NATO going into Afghanistan, NATO going into Iraq, or uh, the US going to, in, in, into Iraq. Um, all of these things that had happened, that you know, the the, the rise of ISIS, um, the attacks around Europe and the, and the rest of the world. Um, to try to be mindful, I guess, of of those things while creating a film based you know on an experience that was at, at the time 15 years uh, before we started production so um so all, yeah i suppose all of those things were interesting challenges um so so that's that's kind of why we 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 took it on i guess because again if you look at the independent model there aren't many um ways you can tell a story like this for the screen at the budget that we did um so doing a an international co-production was the was was a was a, a an amazing option i think you know that the story that not many of the the studios would be willing to take on you know it doesn't make a huge amount of sense in one sense but again the question that this film asks and i think what deborah's book asks uh you know does this child have the right to a roof over her head does she have the right to a peaceful life does she have the right to an education you know does she have the right to a childhood um, those are such interesting questions, and um, so for me, the 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 opportunity to tell a story like this, and again with animation, we had with the, the, what's great about animation is that you can in, you can have it informed by so many different voices. So, um, with this film, we talked to a lot of Afghan people. We showed the animatic over and over again every time we had a new animatic, uh, every time we had a new version of the screenplay to as many Afghan people as possible. We cast as many um, Afghans as we could in the, in, in the, some of the roles. So um, Razak and uh, uh, Saraya, um, you know, we, we different uh, characters that are, are played by, by Afghan uh, Canadian actors. So we, we found ways of um, having Afghan voices in the film and help have their thoughts uh, and love for their country, I guess, inform the way that the, the film um, the tone of the film, I guess, you know, because uh, at one in one sense we wanted the film to be quite universal, but in another sense we wanted it to be very uh, specific. Mm -hmm. So yeah. 
the feel also of the film, I mean, geographically, I say it feels very authentic not having ever been there, but some you can just sort of tell it's been, a lot of care has been taken over, I guess, the art direction and the, the overall environment of the film. Absolutely, yeah. We spent a, like a year before we went into production as we were just starting to storyboard um, researching and just, again, I mean, talking with... Um, somebody who was quite influential on the whole thing was uh, Amanola Mojadidi, who's a, a, an American Afghan artist who talked to us quite a bit about um, about Kabul, about the the particular light there, about how the you know the dust behaves there, how the the light you know uh, cuts through the dust, um, about um, the way that people hold themselves, the, the the differences between the way that men hold themselves and and women do, you know, so he. Again, so there was something about, I think if I had managed to get there, I don't think I would have been able to take in everything. I, of course, I also couldn't travel back in time to the, the Taliban era where um, cameras weren't allowed, you know, the, 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 uh, documenting um, what was going on wasn't, uh, wasn't something that was, uh, was permitted. So, um, so listening to people uh, was far more important than my own impressions, I guess. So asking different Afghan people from different tribes who, uh, you know, had uh, different experiences there because Afghanistan, you know, is a country that has had decades at this point of uh, different types of conflict um, and different types of enemies, you know. Uh, so so to hear all of those perspectives and to try to find the common denominator, I guess, because, again, you ask, you know, 10 uh, Afghan people, what do they think the future of Afghanistan is? You get 10 different answers. The same as if you ask 10 different Irish people, you know, uh, what, the, what the future of Ireland is. So, again, to try and uh, listen w- was quite important. It was interesting, I guess, with, uh, with uh, the Secret Kells or Song of the Sea or, um, or even uh, Cunin Dulac, the backwards boy. But, um, I, you know, you, you take liberties because it's your, your own culture. Um, whereas with this, we didn't take any unless we were, you know, given permission basically by... You know, either people like Amanullah or, or Kawa Ada, who um, plays the, the, the character of, of Razak, who was also the dialect coach on the film. Again, you know, um, I, I, I leaned on, uh, the, you know, as, as many Afghan voices as I could to try to to find that, um, uh, I suppose, authenticity. But uh, but again, you know, so so we were we were as careful as we could be about you know how how the streets looked how the you know the atmosphere looked how the, the you know the the, the characters how they dress etc. But at the, the same time we were always looking for the universal you know we were looking for the things that uh, that um, every girl can identify with Piranha, you know to uh, to a degree um, and you know and the same with the other characters we were always looking for the the the, the elements that made them very dimensional. Um, you know, in, even in what you would consider antagonistic forces, we were trying to look at their characters as empathetically as possible. And for me, the key to the whole thing was imagining that I was Parana's mother, that um, Fatima was my sister, that, you know, Razak was my, my brother, you know. So it, 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 things become quite simple when you look at all of your characters like that in one sense, but it deepens your story and makes your story more complex in, a, in another sense. So, I mean, it was an interesting journey. And honestly, I, I don't think, I thought, you know, I, again, I, when I first read the book, I was just completely taken with the character of Parvana and the excitement of, you know, uh, uh, trying to tell the story and 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 the idea of, of telling a story that doesn't, you know, get told often um, for the screen in a, in a medium that that doesn't, uh, you know, usually handle uh, stories like this. I guess, um, 
so I was well into the process before I realized, I guess, the enormity of, of what I'd taken on. But at, at that point, I had people like, you know, Amanola and Ankawa and Chaista and um, the Afghan Women's Organization, you know, to, to help inform all of the things that I didn't know, basically. Mm. Sequences in the film that felt very well placed and I think kind of crucial with the levity that they were able to bring with them with the uh, elephant story sequences and yeah. um, lovely sort of disparity between the design style uh, there and the rest of the film. What were the sort of key inspirations behind that? Was that sort of referencing specific art in that country? Yeah, I mean, our art directors, we had uh, two art directors on this uh, film, Kieran Duffy, who had worked on um, Song of the Sea, with us as a, as a background uh, artist uh, and uh, has just a wonderful cinematic eye and just an incredibly talented uh, young man. Um, then uh, we had Reza Riahi, who's a, a, a Persian um, uh, director uh, um, who came on to this film as well. And uh, Reza really wanted to look at, I guess, uh, uh, Persian and Afghan miniatures as a reference point for Parwana's imagination to try to give a sense of the history of Afghanistan. You know, Afghanistan, of course, is the, you know, part of the Silk Road. It has thousands of years of, uh, of history where you have all different types of cultures that came through and uh, merged with, uh, uh, with, uh, with Afghan um, uh, art and, uh, uh, and craft work and that. So to try and uh, uh, nod to that, I guess, in some way, we yeah we we researched a lot into Afghan history to to try and give all of those little motifs that you see in in uh, in the story world and the the, the sense of color uh, as well as kind of uh, deeply rooted in in um, in Afghan artwork and and culture. So we wanted to give the sense of that that I guess that that Purana had inherited these you know thousands of years of history that it wasn't just recent history, you know which we're, we're quite familiar with. Um, you know that it it was everything that came before it was um, uh, informs who she is, I guess. So that's why we wanted it to look the way it did, but also I guess just as a as a contrast because we knew that the 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 real world look, um, where you have much more subtle kind of animation and you have a palette that's much more muted, um, needed to look a certain way and needed to have a certain sense of claustrophobia about it, I guess. Um, so to juxtapose that with the uh, a wonderful sense of of freedom, I guess, from her interior world and her connection with her father and her connection with her um, ancestry as a storyteller. Um, it was important to get that that contrast across, but also just when we were um, forming the animatic, I guess it became very evident from a, an instinctual level where in the story we needed to um, breathe, you know, where we needed to to come back up into something that Parana had complete control over because. The whole story, I guess, is about Parana's um, lack of control over her own destiny, which, again, you know, she uh, manages to change to some degree uh, uh, as the, the, the film um, uh, comes to a, to a climax, I guess. But, but we just wanted to make sure that that, uh, that, that was, was, you know, that the, the, the tone kept shifting so that people didn't emotionally disengage, I guess. When I was researching this film um, and looked at some other films that had, a, you know, a, a similarly... Uh, difficult subject matter. I was aware with myself that I was I would emotionally disengage from the from the characters just to protect myself, you know. So with the breadwinner, I didn't want people to be able to do that. So I wanted to keep shifting the tone a little bit 
Um, and to go to humor, because I mean, the thing is, is what you know, we've all, I think, gone to funerals where you feel like giggling or laughing, you know, kind of thing. We always have, you know, there, 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 there's part of our humanity that that tries to bring us to a place where, um, you know, we we uh, we laugh, you know, when when it, when it doesn't, when when we shouldn't, you know, or uh, when. So I think that, I, that was also something I guess I really wanted to to get across is that that um that uh yeah that 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 we find we find times to smile at the, the, the strangest times i suppose in our lives you know? mm-hmm. and it does also kind of shine through i mean there's a lot of brutality in the film but also i think kind of crucially a lot of humanity and the family values and the sort of strength of friendship in the midst of these very kind of turbulent goings on and coming away from the film, it doesn't feel like it's a lot of upsetting things happen, but it's not a depressing film. It's a kind of positive film. No, no, absolutely. Um, the easiest thing in the world would have been to give this film some kind of a happy ending, I guess, you know, or, or some kind of a what, what, what would feel um, like a very satisfactory ending in a very uh, like classical sense. You know, if you look at the kind of hero's journey type of, you know, storytelling and that. I knew with this film that we couldn't do that. And actually, the, the earliest conversation I had with uh, Angelina Jolie, the, the, one of the film's executive producers, was about this. How do you set the tone for the film, and especially the ending of the film, in a way that suggests hope but doesn't um, do a disservice to the experience that the Afghan people went through straight after, you know, the, 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 the period that, that the... Uh, the film talks about and what they're still going through, you know, in 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 a in a sense, and and what you know they will continue to go through over the next, uh, you know, the 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 next while. Um, uh, so to to, I suppose you know to to not give a really simple answer to a very complex uh, issue, we wanted to yeah end the film with with with. Um, with hope, but not be unrealistic or not. Again, like I said, the, the worst thing in the world for me would have been to to give some kind of a, a you know a, a superficial or easy answer. So um, so that that did take a while to try and to try, to to try and craft that, I suppose, in a way. But also, I mean, it's something I'm I'm quite interested in. Um, the idea of the hero's journey. Uh, you know, a, a a character sets out to um, uh, you know, is set a mission. They, uh, they, you know, they, uh, you know, the, the, the successful or, or unsuccessful outcome of that mission, and that's it. That's the end of the film. You know, we have a very kind of classical structure on things, but I wonder often how much that fits the female uh, psyche and the female journey. You know, um, uh, so we, we we come to expect certain things. You know, from from a film to be a, a satisfying experience. Uh, we expect it to answer questions, but at the end of the day, you know, none of us really know the answers to the most uh, complex questions. So I'm always interested in in stories and films that pose a question more than try to to answer them. You know, I think that the the answer is in the audience's hands. You know, um, so um, really, I feel once I uh, once we create a satisfactory enough experience in the cinema to set people thinking, you know, and not to Kind of you know stop their thinking with the minute they they walk out of the, the the screening then that's that's the more interesting thing for me and especially when I think of uh, young people going to see this film so when you think of you know teenagers or uh, older children going to see a film like this you know I, I still remember this, the films that I that I saw when I was you know 10 11 years old 
Um, so I guess there, there, there is power in, in storytelling and there's power in telling stories that aren't so familiar, that don't have that familiar structure, you know, in, in terms of, um, you know, everything being neatly tied up at the, at the end. So uh, stories that, that uh, focus more on exploring characters and exploring the, the, the conflict within characters as well as the, you know, um, antagonistic forces outside the characters. I think these are all really interesting things that, you know, we don't get to explore often. And that, that's, again, it's the beauty of, of uh, independent filmmaking is that you, you get to really explore these and people tend to get behind filmmaking teams, you know, and, and uh, funders tend to get uh, behind filmmaking teams uh, at an independent level that you don't see with, uh, with larger mm. budgets, you know. And given that um, a few years had passed between and um, uh, with this film you were the sole director, were there any sort of major challenges, I guess, or differences between the experience of directing Secret of Kells and directing this film? Uh, well, yeah, I, I mean, certainly, like, again, for like to, to head this uh, uh, and it being something that was outside of my own experience, I guess, you know, the, not that, I mean, the secret of Kells. I hadn't been a a ninth century monk, you know, either. So I guess it all it all uh, you know you, you all rely heavily on your your capacity to kind of understand what another um, human being might have gone through. I guess, and uh, uh, so I suppose there's that. I mean, it, it, between the secret of Kells and and uh, the breadwinner, I was head of story on 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 Song of the Sea. So again, that whole animatic journey. Um, I was uh, sitting, you know, at the at the 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 avid. Uh, with uh, Dara, um, you know, uh, uh, to to for that whole storyboarding experience, and and I directed the the, the voice performances on on uh, Song of the Sea. So it's not you know, uh, and also then we we created a series called Puff and Rock for Netflix, and um, I headed up the development of that before we brought on a a, a director. So because I'm a, you know one of the creative directors of of Cartoon Saloon, I'm always my hand is in several projects at the at the one time. So even while directing breadwinner you know was mindful of other projects that were in development that they had to be shepherded along so um so it, um it, there wasn't a gap in a sense you know um so uh, it, i guess yeah i don't know i mean was there yeah there was a huge i mean there was a huge difference between the two uh, productions because of um the way the production pipeline has changed and because everything is immediate and everything is digital and it meant that i could you know, you could go home in the evening and check in on uh, how your scenes were doing. You could watch them, um, you know, play one after the other, you know, so so it, it becomes much easier. Um, again, Stuart Shankly, who's working um, between Canada and Ireland, uh, our, our co-producers in Canada, Aircraft Pictures, had brought on a company called uh, Guru Studio, who did an amazing job on the compositing with this film. They cracked the whole um, story world look, um, because we we wanted it to look like cutout animation, but we didn't want it to look like a student film. So again, on our budget, it was a difficult thing to manage. So we wanted to do it uh, digitally. Our, our brief for the story world was we wanted to make it look like somebody who had twenty years to work on, you know, uh, on a on on the story world, and they had like every every type of uh, technology available to them, you know. So. Um, uh, so yeah, it's, I mean, you know, in one sense, I guess it was difficult, but in another, another sense, uh, it was, uh, it was, it was, it was way easier, I think, than than the Secret of Kells, just because, you know, you can, you could, you could go on Skype and you could, you know, talk to somebody as though you're, you're in the same room as you do, you, you know, check in on people 
everywhere. So it just meant that the, the again the, the at, at the bottom line is the true line um, arc, physical arc, their performance uh, of Parwana and, and making sure that that was consistent throughout the film. Um, it, that was a, a, an easier task on, on the breadwinner than it would have been on The Secret of Kells. Hmm. From your perspective, do you feel like the industry and the public in general are becoming more accepting of animation as a medium for all audiences? I think so, and I hope so. I mean, it, 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 I suppose it, it did kind of shock me that some of you know the reviews came back saying, "Why is you know why is animation being used to tell a story that's not suitable for for three year olds?" You know, yeah. um, so I mean that for me that 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 that's always a bit of a shock because you know it's, it's then that you understand that you know some people are <laughs> uh, you know think of animation as a genre. It has to always be the same kind of thing. It has to be a family, uh, you know, usually comedy kind of uh, uh, film. Um, so, so that's that's that that's quite a, a shock to me, or it always perplexes me, I guess. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, you know, the the advent of things like YouTube, Netflix, Amazon, you know, uh, mean that people accidentally stumble across things uh, quite a bit now, and I think that broadens how they view the medium of animation, I guess. Um, so yeah, I mean, I think the future is very bright for animation i think it's bright for different types of animation as well i think it's, it's you know people say that that 2d animation is is dying um i they've been saying that for for 20 years you know and there is still uh you know amazing stories uh being told with uh, with 2d animation and uh i see you know uh the, 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 the uh, studios like uh, sergio pablo's studio uh, studio spa uh, in is is making uh, you know an, a, a beautiful looking uh, uh, 2D animated film uh, called Klaus, uh, and that's uh, yeah uh, the 2D animation and it's, it, it it looks like the animation is at a standard that you know we haven't seen for for 40 years you know so so uh, you know I so I think it's all it's all positive um, going forward uh, yeah I, I think it's uh, it that that people are broadening out and people are starting to to look at animation. Um, uh, yeah, as a medium that can that can tell stories at a, a, a different in a different way, I guess, and at, at a different level than uh, than than live action. Yeah. That was Nora Toomey, director of The Breadwinner, uh, which is released in UK cinemas on Friday, the twenty fifth of May, two thousand and eighteen, in the far future. It's a ways away. In between then and now, it may uh, find itself winning an Oscar. We will find out on the fourth of March. It's also up for numerous Annie Awards. We'll know about that sooner, February 3rd. Yeah, various others, it's doing very well. And you can find out more about the film at thebreadwinner.com. And the studio Cartoon Saloon, all their wonderful work is cartoonsaloon.ie. Well, thank you for joining us. Don't forget you can cast your votes on our uh, BAFTA and Oscar polls. We'll see what you guys want to have win. To keep up to date with all the other general animation news, reviews, interviews, etc. Keep following us on Twitter at Squiggly. The website is squiggly.com. We're on Instagram at Squiggly Animation and Facebook at Squiggly Magazine. Uh, I think that's all of them. All the main ones. I'm on Twitter at Ben L. Mitchell. Steve is on Twitter at Mr. Underscore S Underscore Henderson. And until next time, happy animating. Boss baby. Exactly. Wow, uh, a, 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 a beautiful car crash finish. The best ones always <laughs> are. Brilliant.